Well, good morning, morning. Springbrook and Merry Christmas. Welcome to the house of the Lord for worship this morning. I hope and pray that you had just a delightful and joy-filled holiday yesterday. We're going to continue in the spirit of celebrating Christmas this morning. I want to also welcome you if you're joining us online today and remind you that as always, we have online hosts who are available all throughout the service who would love to engage with you, answer your questions, and spend time in prayer with you. So I encourage you to participate in the chat and to use that request prayer button if you'd like to talk to one of our online hosts in a private one-on-one chat. Well, over the last month, we have walked together through the season of Advent, the time of anticipating and waiting on the coming of Christ. And on Friday night, we lit that center Christ candle on the Advent wreath, celebrating that our King has indeed come. And so we're going to continue in that spirit this morning. I'd love to invite you now to stand, if you are able, for our call to worship. Our call to worship for today comes from Isaiah chapter 9. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Let's worship our King who has come this morning. Lift our voices together. Hark the herald angels sing glory to the newborn King who Thank you. 
praise the Lord. Our scripture reading for today will be here momentarily. That's what happens when I use technology, guys. 1 Corinthians 15 is where our scripture reading comes from today. As we're celebrating Christmas this weekend, we're not just celebrating the baby in the manger, right? We're celebrating Christ's life and his death and his resurrection and his ongoing life, even today. And so the scripture from 1 Corinthians 15 is Paul speaking to the church. And he says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And so we worship the risen Christ today. Let's continue to lift our voices and worship together. from heaven you came running there was mercy in your eyes to fulfill the law and prophets to a virgin came the word from a throne of endless glory to a cradle in the Truth of all shall not kneel, it 
before the Lord together in prayer. Father, we thank you once again for Jesus. We thank you for all that this weekend means. All the celebrating and all of the joy. What it points to is you. What it points to is your perfect purpose by sending your son Jesus for us. And I pray, I pray for each person in this room, for those for whom this was the most joyful holiday season they've ever known, that they would be able to just find their joy in you. They would be able to continue to celebrate and carry that joy with them. And for those for whom this holiday season was maybe a little bit heavier, weighed down with some grief or loss or anxiety from this past year, will you come near to them in this moment and bring comfort? Father, thank you that we don't have to um, exit the Christmas season just because the holiday itself has passed, but we can continue each day to recognize Emmanuel, God with us, here with us in this room. Father, will you move? We need you this morning. We need you for our next breath, for the next beat of our hearts. We need you to give us understanding. Will you open our eyes so that we can see, our ears so that we can hear, our hearts that we might receive what you have for us because you have good things for us. Father, we love you. All of this is for you. It's for your glory that we pray. Amen. And you may be seated. Good morning, everyone. I picked a wobbly stool. And that's, that's the start of this morning. Um, welcome, everyone. Um, the day after Christmas. Um, I'm really excited for this morning. Um, and you'll, you'll note my excitement from there's something missing. Um, I always have a security blanket when I'm up here, which is that TV. And it's normally like right here. And every time I forget where I'm going, I can just look at it and click next, and it tells me where to go. Um, But it's the day after Christmas, and I wanted to just sit down with you and hopefully have a good chat about the gospel. Um, And I have a question to start. Oh, I have a question to start with you all. Um, And um, I want to tell you all that I am a Christmas Grinch. 
Um, and, and, you know, it's the day after Christmas, so why am I even talking about it? Well, I'm, I'm talking about it today, um, one, because it's my job, but um, two, because uh, I, I've loved this series. I've loved the last few weeks. Pastor Rich has been talking about how you know, people are already counting down to next year's Christmas. Last week, he talked about the, like, 371 days till Christmas next year, and I I got a chuckle out of that, because I know so many people, for so many people, the anticipation of Christmas Day is the most amazing and wonderful thing. And this year, yesterday, I found myself, um, Lucy last year could not physically open presents on her own. She could kind of tear at them, but she didn't care. She was, like, 14 months old. This year, Lucy knew what she was doing. She was ripping. She, uh, we had presents that weren't for her that she's like, that's a bag. Can I please have that? And um, I, I was thinking this year, we, we did a lot of intentional things for the, the day um, because we want to make sure the day is focused on Christ. And so I have a question for all of you as we begin. Um, and the question is, think about yesterday. Did you keep Christ in Christmas? Did you keep Christ in Christmas? And part of why I ask this is because for the last two, I'm really, for the last like five months, it's been at Costco since August, um, there have been Christmas things out there. And then when people start saying happy holidays, other people say, you have to say Merry Christmas. You have to do this. And, and there's this culture war. And it feels like we're moving to the other side. Like if it was like a, a bell curve, like at one point it was Merry Christmas versus happy holidays. And now it's like, well, people say happy holidays and you let it slide, but I'm going to say Merry Christmas. But my question isn't about what did you say. My question is about how you lived yesterday. If somebody watched your yesterday in real time, outside like when you were asleep, and for parents of young children, I know that that wasn't very long, but for, for most of you, I, I wonder, would somebody say Jesus Christ is at the center of today? Um, and I, I'm ornery about this, I am, but I, I do this because I think it's a good reflection for every day. And there's one day a year besides Easter that's so specifically labeled about him that I think it's worth asking, did we keep Christ in the day where we celebrate his birth? And when I look at culture and, and the world, I, I get all cynical because I'm like, if on my birthday people celebrated by putting giant bows on card cars and giving other people cards and, and doing all these things but not really talking about me, I, I think that's kind of weird. Um, but but I, I say all this to be kind of ornery, but then to say there's something here that I think is really worth talking about, um, and it's the word Christ. Because for a lot of people, I think if you ask them, what does Christ mean? They don't really know. Um, and I say this after doing some informal thir- surveys the last few months where um, I, especially the month of December, I ask people, so what does Christ mean? And people right away say Savior. Um, no one praised the Lord. No one said, well, it's just Jesus's last name. Um, but if you Google, that's an early on the list, you know, when you're looking at search results, is Christ Jesus's last name? Um, and so, so people know at least that far. But the picture in Scripture about the word Christ is so different than what I think we imagine. We like to think Savior because that, that's, we all go right to Savior because we want a Savior. But the word Christ brings with it so much more. It's so much richer, and it requires so much more of a response if we understand it. And so we're, we're going to look at that in a moment. Um, but first, I'm going to pray. Father, you are so good, and we thank you that yesterday you 
where we celebrate the birth of your son. Um, We thank you that nine months before he was born, he subjected himself to be in a womb. If there were ultrasound machines back then, he would have been visible. The son of God, the ruler of all creation, would have been visible in a womb. And I just, it is a staggering thought. And we thank you that when you sent him, you had such a plan in mind that we just sang about in the song King of Kings, and we're going to sing about at the end. And we thank you so much that when you sent him, you sent him to be far more than just a savior who made us feel justified, but you sent him that we could be what we were created to be. I pray now as we look at your word and look at the word Christ specifically, that you would help us to better understand what it means and the implications of it. I I pray you would, your spirit would be moving, you'd speak through me, and that you'd speak to all of us here. We thank you that because of your son, because of his birth, his life, his death and resurrection, that, that there is a place for us in your eternity. And we pray that we would come to better understand that today and we would come to better reflect on that wherever we're at. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So behind the word Christ um, is the word Messiah. They kind of mean the same thing. Um, and if, the reason that it went from Messiah to Christ, Old Testament to New Testament, um, is because the, the idea behind Messiah was it was the anointed one. Messiah in Hebrew is like the transliteration. It's what it sounds like. It's Messiah. It's, it's like Meshaim. I'm, I'm going to butcher it. Meshaim or something. And it, it means the anointed one. And in the Old Testament, they were waiting on the anointed one. And we'll get to that in a minute. But then when you go into the Greek, um, it's like Christu means anointed. Christos means the anointed one. And so when we say Christ, we're saying the anointed one. And so then we need to understand anointed with what? What is the one? Could the one be anything? How how do we sort this out? And so to even understand the word Christ, we need to start in the Old Testament. In fact, a, a, a good understanding of the gospel is entirely built on the Old Testament because the Old Testament gives us the entire foundation for who Jesus is. And so we have to start right from the beginning, everybody, in order to understand this anointed one. And, but once we understand him and the implications behind what we are saying when we say Jesus Christ, when we say Jesus the anointed one, I think we will have such a better grasp of, of why we do things like celebrate communion. If you're at home right now, um, I forgot to say this at the start, but we're going to partake of communion at the end of our service, and so you might want to grab the elements at some point. Um, but... At this point, we're going to jump in. If you go back to Genesis 1, Genesis 1 begins, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then when God created the heavens and the earth, we get six days of creation where God created light, he created land, he created everything on the land, the plants, the fruits, the vegetation, everything there. Then he created the stars and the sun and the moon to rule by day and by night. And then he created all of the living things on the earth. And every day, at the end of the day, it said, good, it was good, it was good. God saw what he had created, and it was good. The God who spoke creation into existence said, that's good. And then we come to day six, and after God has created all of the animals that are walking on the earth, then God decides and, and makes a, a different step. And in Genesis 1:26, it says, Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, And let them have dominion, let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. 
So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. The idea of being created in the image of God is God who reigns over everything, over the universe, over everything we can fathom and more, created humans to reign on the earth on his behalf, created us in his image, which it, it comes with the idea of priestly. We are to function as, as his servants. We are to function as those who follow him, but he is a good and perfect master, so it's a perfect relationship. There is nothing we could want more than that. That is exactly what he created us to be. And he created us to rule over all of creation. And that's Genesis 1. And when God gets done with that, he'd said, good, 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 good. And then when God saw all that he had created, with humans created in his image, ruling over creation, he said it was very good. And that's the end of the creation account. After that, God rests, so day seven. Um, and that starts our week cycle and all that. But the, the, the point is, is that we were created to rule on God's behalf. And then you come to Genesis 2, and Genesis 1 is this grand overview. And then in Genesis 2, we start to see how that will functionally work. God puts the man in the garden and he tells him, take care of everything here. There was good fruit to eat. There was everything he could imagine. He had purpose each day. He had a job on behalf of God. And that was, and he walked in right relationship with God. And then the woman comes into the picture. We don't have time to go into that except to say that God created man to be with other people as well or humanity. And so the man and the woman were together in right relationship in creation. They were naked and unashamed. They were serving God. They were in right relationship with God. It was exactly what humanity was meant to be. And God gave them one command. And spoiler alert, they did not keep it. Um, And Genesis 2, God tells the man, hey, don't eat from this one tree, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And what God is saying there, if God had not done that, they would have essentially been, in my mind, I think they would have just been robots. They would have just, whatever they did was fine. But God gave them one thing and said, do not do this, because he wanted to give them the capacity to actually rule and to actually choose him. That's how I read it. Um, we can talk about predestination and election later, but, but in some capacity, that's the Bible storyline. And so what, what happened in Genesis 3, remember in Genesis 1, humanity was to rule over all of creation and everything that walked in creation. And then we get to Genesis 3, and a beast of the field, a serpent that I know we know later it's Satan, but representative in the scripture, it's a serpent, something that they were told to rule over comes and asks the woman, did God really say, if you eat that, you'll die? And then they start, or if you touch that, you'll die. And they start this conversation where at the end of the conversation, we find out three things. One, the man was next to the woman. It's not the woman tricked the man. The the man was sitting there. I like to think he was wondering if she'd be poisoned. Um, And then when she wasn't poisoned, he said, me too. But um, two, we, we see a very good definition of sin because when we talk about good and evil and the knowledge of good and evil, what we are talking about is God has a definition of good and evil and will we live inside that or not? And when they chose not to follow him, they were saying, my definition of good and evil is enough or equal to yours, God. And the third thing we see is that if you read closely Genesis 3, the temptation that caused the woman and the man to fall was the temptation that they would be like God. They were above everything, but subject to God in right relationship with him. They knew they were in right relationship with him. And yet in that moment, they said, I'd rather be him than be with him. And the consequence of that was right after they ate from that tree, they immediately realized, oh, we're naked. And they felt shame for the first time. And the first thing they did is they tried to cover themselves. The, the very next thing that happened is God comes and he says, where are you guys? 
And the man responds, and, he, and, and God asks what happened, and the man responds, and he says, the woman you gave me. Um, and then the woman responds and says, the beast we're supposed to rule over. And, and after that moment, the very first thing God says is he makes a promise to that serpent. And to that serpent, God says, someday someone will come from the line of this woman who will crush your head, but you will bite his heel. You will, you will damage him, but he will destroy you. And that's the first promise of the Christ, the Messiah, Jesus. And it takes place before God responds to humanity's sin. And from that point, God tells the woman and the man, here are the consequences for your sin and the way you will live. But then the final consequence, they've been in the Garden of Eden with the tree of life, with right relationship with God in his presence, and they are completely removed. They are no longer allowed back in there. In fact, God sets um, angels, cherubim, to, to block the way for them to come back in because were they to enter, they would be destroyed. And God loves them enough to remove them that they would not be destroyed. And God set that promise to them that someday one would come who would defeat sin. And so then the question of the whole Bible from that point is, who will be from the line of that woman who will defeat sin? And then you meet Cain. And, and if you were reading the Bible with no foreknowledge, you would go, maybe it'll be him. That's, that's kind of how you're, that's the drama of the Bible if you've never read it before. And, and so Cain comes, and then Abel comes. And when you meet Cain, you find out that Cain was not very good. He, God was, uh, God did not favor Cain because Cain did not favor God. God said, you know what to do. Cain did not offer right sacrifices. Abel did. It wasn't that what Cain offered was wrong. He offered fruits and vegetables, but he offered not the best of what he had, even though he knew that that's what God wanted. And God told Cain, dude, you know what you're supposed to do. Sin is crouching at your door. Don't let it win. Sin crouching like a beast. And Cain saw that his brother was regarded well by the Lord, and he wasn't. And instead of saying, what I'm doing is evil, let me do good, he killed his brother so that his brother was no longer good, and then he could be the good. And that did not go well, of course. But, but the point is, is that instead of repenting and turning to the Lord, things got worse and worse and worse. Three chapters later in the Bible, we're reading about the flood, where when we meet Noah, we wonder, is he perfect? Because it says he's blameless before the Lord, and we're supposed to read that narrative and think, are we going back to the garden? Is this someone who will be right before the Lord? And Noah does really well right up until they get off the boat, and then things go south. And then after that, the next story we see is the Tower of Babel, where, where you've got all of humanity banded together saying, instead of turning to the Lord... Let's build our own way to the gods. And that fails too. And in Genesis 1 through 11, we, we hinge everything on one promise. Really two promises. But one, the main promise is the seed of the woman. Someone from that line of the woman will someday defeat evil and death. There's also a promise that God will never flood the earth again um, when they get off the, the, the flood, when they get off the ark. And so that promise is there. Every time you see a rainbow... God's not going to destroy all of us in a flood. Water world isn't real. But the, the point is, is that the biggest line is this line, or the biggest thread in the Bible is who will be that person? And how will we return to the land with God, the Garden of Eden? How will we get back to right relationship with God? And then in Genesis 12, Abram is introduced, who becomes Abraham, Father Abraham. But um, God promises Abram, he makes a covenant with him, and he says, 
follow me, leave your father's household, go to this land that I will provide for you, which is ultimately the land of Israel. And when you get there, that will be the place where your descendants will live. And through you, I will bless all nations. And so for the first time, we start to see promises about God's people. We see promises about a multitude of God's people. And we see promises that through Abraham, who is descended from the woman, one will come who will bless all nations. And so the promise gets a little more specific from a human to a human who is probably part of Abraham's line and really is part of Abraham's line. And then you go through the end of the book of Genesis and you meet Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the sons of Jacob. We get to Exodus. And and when we get to Exodus, we meet Moses. And when we first meet Moses, if we're still thinking with Genesis 1 through 3 in mind, we're going to wonder, is, is Moses the one who will strike the serpent on the head and the serpent will crush his heel? And then the first time Moses goes to redeem some Israelites, to save some Israelites on his own, he kills an Egyptian to do so. So he's not the one. But God uses Moses to deliver his people out of slavery in Egypt. He takes them, and and the idea that God has for the people is not just, I'm going to get you out of Pharaoh's hands, but God's promise from the beginning of the book of Exodus right up until the end of Deuteronomy for his people is, I'm going to take you out of slavery, out of this bondage, and I'm going to bring you into a land that I have chosen where you can be my people and I will be your God, and I will dwell with you. From Exodus through Deuteronomy, we see highs and lows of the people that will become the Israelites. And in the midst of that, uh, we talked about this in Leviticus, they build this tabernacle, this giant tent that is supposed to allow the Israelites to be in God's presence again. We talked about this in like March ish of this year, where, where there was this temple, or a tabernacle, it was a tent, but it eventually became the temple in Jerusalem. But, but they had this tent that the entire world of the Israelites, when they were between Egypt and when they got to the promised land, it was all centered around that. And the idea was God was going to be their people. He was going to dwell with them. It was supposed to remind us of going back to Eden. But there was a problem, as we talked about earlier this year, where, where in order for God to dwell with them, their sin had to be accounted for. And God, who is perfect and holy, cannot dwell in the midst of imperfection because he would be less perfect if he allowed it. And so in order for them to be there, something had to be done about their sin. And the book of Leviticus shows us how the Old Testament imperfect solution was the sacrifice of animals and the blood of something pure to cover something impure, the life of something pure to cover sin. And at the end of Leviticus, the one thing that stands out to me every time I read through it is that the book of Leviticus leaves us with a very incomplete solution. Year after year after year, they had to offer the same sacrifices because they could not truly account for sin. And you can summarize the whole Old Testament with that, um, but there's a lot more that happens, and we'll talk about a bit more. But so Moses... Um, who, who for a while we thought was going to be really good. Turns out he wasn't great, but he was better than just about anyone in the Old Testament. Moses doesn't get to enter the promised land because of his sin, but Moses hands things off to Joshua. Joshua leads the people in. The people are supposed to go and take over the entire land God has promised, and then they get about halfway in, and they go, you know what? We'll settle for this. And Joshua, in his old age, says, please don't settle for this. And they say, we'll settle for this. And then the book of Judges comes, and we see how the people over and over fall further and further away from God. They worship other gods. They do all these wicked things. And then God raises up a deliverer for them. 
And every time we meet these deliverers, we're supposed to kind of wonder, is this, the, is this the Messiah? Is this the one from the line of the woman, a, a descendant of Abraham, who will save us? And over and over and over, the answer is no. They are imperfect people doing their best, but none of them is the one who will ultimately save us. And then we meet Samuel, and the start of the book of Samuel. Um, and, and when we meet Samuel, Samuel's really good. And we start off thinking, well, maybe this guy, especially because how he's introduced. Um, we, we feel really good about it, Samuel. And then Samuel starts to get old, and in his old age, the people say, hey, we want a king. And Samuel says, do you? And they say, yes. And Samuel gets mad and says, you have God. Why do you need a king? And the people say, give us a king. And Samuel, or God says to Samuel, Samuel, we're going to give them what they want. It is not what they need. They have me. They're not rejecting you, Samuel. They're rejecting me. And the people want a king to be like all the nations around them. And, and what they get is they, they get a king like all the nations around them. They get Saul, this really tall, handsome coward who is supposed to lead the people into battle, but he does nothing like that. He, he is a man who looks like he could be violent, um, but he is often hiding. That's one of his main character arcs in the Bible. Um, he's angry and he hides a lot. He's a coward. But the people get him because they see him and say, that looks like the kind of person we want to lead us. And in the middle of that, we meet David. And David's actually a good king. He's a man after God's own heart. When we first meet David... We meet him when he is anointed. Messiah. But um, he's not the Messiah, but, but that anointing word starts with Saul and David as they are anointed. I hope you see that. But, um, but the, the idea that comes out of this is when we meet David, we might wonder, is he the one from the line of the woman? In fact, the first time we meet David, he does, um, he's out tending sheep, and then he works in Saul, and then eventually the story of David and the giant. Um, in that story, the reason that David takes action is because he sees the people of Israel losing heart. And David says, don't let any man lose heart. I will do this because, uh, you know, who defies the armies of the living God? We talked about that in like June. But the, the point of this is when we first meet David, we should be really excited that maybe this is the one. And then we keep reading about David, <laughs> and he has some really high highs. Um, in, in 2 Samuel, when he first becomes king, it is the closest to the Garden of Eden, I think, in the Bible, when they say David ruled all his people with justice and equity. He was a perfect king, almost. He wasn't really perfect. But we're supposed to look at him and be very excited. And David comes to God, and he, he says to Nathan the prophet to say to God, he says, I want to build a temple. We have a tabernacle. I want to build a temple for God in Jerusalem, the center of the land that God has given us, that God may permanently dwell with us. And God says through Nathan to David, no. And, and part of it is because David was a man of war, a man of violence. Part of, and, and the Lord used him, but the Lord said, that's, that's not going to be how we do this. He said, we're going to do this in a different way. But he promises David that someone from the line of David in the future, God will establish as an eternal king, and his throne will last forever. And he doesn't just say, David, someone from your line. He says, David, someone from your line will also be from my line. God is promising a thousand years before the birth of Jesus that he will become the word made flesh. He will dwell among us in human form. Right after that, David goes downhill really fast. 
Um, and then uphill, and then downhill, and it's kind of a... But, but the point is, is that we see these promises develop. We've got in Genesis, we've got from, from the line of the woman, someone will defeat evil. We've got that, that someone will be someone who will bless all nations. All nations will be blessed through this person. And now we've got this person will be a king. And a king in Israel was an anointed human um, who will reign forever. And so every time we meet a son of David and from the line of David, we should wonder, will this be the one? And the rest of the Old Testament tells us in resounding words, none of these guys. Solomon, who is the wisest man who ever lives, is such a bad parent that when his son takes over after him, within like a week, the kingdom is split in two. You, you go down the line and every king after David in the line of David, some are good, some are bad. Some are terrible, but ultimately what happens is Israel is first split into two kingdoms, and then the northern kingdom, Israel, it becomes Israel and Judah. The northern kingdom of ten tribes of Israel falls. The southern kingdom, the kingdom with Jerusalem, the kingdom where David's line continues, lasts a while longer, and then it falls as well. And when it falls, it leaves you wondering, what on earth happened because God promised someone from that woman someone from the tri- or from the line of Abraham and someone from the line of David will someday reign forever and now their nation their city the temple has been destroyed they have nothing left they've all been pulled into exile and the only hope left for the people of Israel is that God had sent prophet after prophet to tell them basically I'm going to paraphrase it but shape up or ship out you know like a parent when the trying to either clean your room or we're going to kick you out or, you know, I don't know. But that's what I think of when I, but over and over, God sent prophets and the first prophet said, repent. Eventually the prophet started saying, I see you're not going to repent. I want you to know that, that God is going to, you're, you're going to be removed from this kingdom. And God wants you to know he's still in control. Because you see, in that day, if there was a battle and a kingdom was taken over, it meant that the God that took a, the God of the people that won the battle was stronger than the other God. But God, through Ezekiel, through Jeremiah, through Isaiah, through all of these prophets, God is telling them, hey, this is coming because you guys will not repent. And it's too late now for the full repentance. It's not going to happen. I see it's not going to happen. But on the other side of this, I'm still in control. My promises are still secure. And in about 70, 80 years after the exile into Babylon, a, a king, a Persian, it's like Ezra and Nehemiah, we start to see the people are starting to be allowed to return. And when they're allowed to return, we, we get to about 420 BC, somewhere right around there. And the last of the Old Testament books is written. The last of the prophets speaks. And then there's silence for 400 plus years. And, and we have to talk about this because the, the idea of the Messiah is written into every page of the Old Testament. The idea that Jesus would come. But the word Messiah related to Jesus is never used. In that 400 years, what happens is that the Jews who are returning to Jerusalem are still under oppressive rule from the Babylonians, the Persians, and then eventually the Romans. And they are wondering, God has brought us back here. We've rebuilt the temple. Why has God not raised up that person from the line of David who will overthrow our enemies? Why are we not back on top? That's a big question. And so the messianic... 
We don't have time for this, but if you read the story of Hanukkah and you read that story in light of the Messiah, you read it very differently because that happened between 400 and zero when Jesus was born and the people were waiting for someone who could defeat the people who they saw as their oppressors. And for 400 years, this theology of the Messiah developed as the the priests and the people of Israel wondered, why have we fallen so far? How do we return Just like when they got removed from the garden, how do we return? And now for 400 years, they were in the right land, but they didn't hear from God. We're going to close in a little while. Bethany, don't come out yet. But um, we're going to close in a little while, and we're going to sing a song that when we sing the song, um, it talks about Silent Night, and it talks about how, and I love the song, and we'll we'll get there. But, But something I love about it is the song talks about how the night we sing Silent Night, is the first night in human history where there was a guarantee that there would never be a silent night again. Because when God came in the form of Jesus, it was the beginning of God with us. And from that point on, there would never be a 400 years where everyone wondered what happened, how did we fall so far. Through the Messiah, through Christ, we have a way back to God. And when Jesus came, he came as the Messiah. When people call him Christ and Lord, they are calling him They are calling him a king from the line of David, an anointed one that they are saying, if he is the Christ, the people that we're calling Jesus Christ, when he says, who do you say I am? And Peter says the Christ. When the, when the, uh, the woman at the well in John 4, when she says, I know that when Christ, who is called Messiah, when he comes, he will reveal these things to us. And Jesus says, I who am talking to you, I am he, I am the Messiah. When Jesus says that, what he is saying is, I am a king from the line of David who will bring back my people to right relationship with God. On top of that, he is the king from, who can defeat death and evil. He's also the king who will bless all nations. He's also the king from the line of David who will rule forever. He is saying all of those things. When we see that word Christ, we're not seeing the last name of Jesus. We're not seeing just a savior. We're seeing a king, a lord. We are seeing a person who is set up throughout the whole Old Testament to be both the solution for humanity and the ideal of what humanity should have been from the beginning. We were created in the image of God to rule on his behalf. Jesus is the literal image of the invisible God brought before us, God with us, that we might know who he is and that we might follow him. He is a good king worthy of everything we have, that we might be a part of his kingdom. And when Jesus came, Jesus, who was perfect, did not interact with anyone who deserved anything but death. I always joke with our students about how if, if Jesus was like a, what we would expect, he would have like laser eyes, and any time a Pharisee talked back to him, they'd zap, gone. Um, I, I, like I joke, but I, seriously, he, when he touched people, we know that people who were in the presence of God in the Old Testament, if they went in in inappropriate ways, they were killed for it. The people who touched the ark inappropriately or looked in the ark were killed for doing so. A woman who had been bleeding for a very long time touches the hem of his robe and she's healed. People that he interacts with, he loves and he lifts up and he he cares for and he is anything but a violent man. He is anything but a king who is going to dominate over others. Instead, he goes around saying, come join my kingdom. Most people who get mad at him get mad at him because they say, I'm not sure I want to be in a kingdom where you let the sinners in. And Jesus says, 
well, then you wouldn't be welcome there either. Um, but the, the, the point is, is that Jesus, through his whole ministry, is inviting person after person to join in his kingdom. And it's this beautiful message. And then there's a problem with the message. Um, and it's a problem that you see when you see people approach him humbly. Jesus came to bring about a kingdom for all the people he interacted with and for us as part of the blessing of all nations. He, he, he wanted every human to have the opportunity to be a part of this kingdom if they would just respond. But the problem is, is that the kingdom Jesus came to bring, he talked about it in his prayer, on earth as it is in heaven. And in order for Jesus' kingdom to come about, God's kingdom to come about on earth as it is in heaven, it needs to be a place of perfection and a place without sin. And the bad news here for all of us is, as Jesus said, come join my kingdom, is that we are not welcome. I am not welcome in Jesus' kingdom. If I went into Jesus' kingdom of my own power, I'd ruin it. I, I, I think about this all the time, how, how um, in my head, something that I've been, I, this year especially, I think about how good it is that Jesus and God do not allow sin in their kingdom, because if for eternity sin was just allowed, how sick would heaven be? if it was a place where sin was allowed. But sin is not allowed there. And the problem with sin not being allowed there for all of us is I'm a sinner and you're a sinner. Um, and we're all sinners. And because of that, we are not welcome in this kingdom. And when you read the story of Jesus going to the cross, when you read the Passion Week, he, he, if you remember, he enters on a donkey, Jerusalem. He enters on a donkey. And when he enters on a donkey, the people expected him on a white horse. They expected him to come in ready to kill some Romans. And the people were ready to kill some Romans. And he comes in on a little donkey that he's got to like kind of ride sideways because it's so young and so new. And he comes in in a way that says, peace on earth, as the people are ready to overthrow some Romans. And when he's there, and he, the first thing he does, they, they're expecting him to go overthrow the ruling class of the day. The first thing he does is he goes in the temple and he flips the tables and he drives out the people who were turning the temple into a place for profit. And then his enthronement as king, in all the Gospels, it's agreed, his enthronement is the night when he was betrayed. And he went to the cross. And the crown of thorns, and the, they, they mocked him. They put a sign over his head that said he was the king of the Jews. They, they announced him as Messiah as they killed him. And if you read the Gospels carefully, it's very clear that Jesus was in control. He acts like a king, even as he willingly lets himself die, as he says it is finished. And the good news here is, is, is he rose again, right? Because in rising again, Jesus had promised, I'm going to die, and three days later, I'm going to rise. And in rising, he said, I've said I'm the Messiah. I've said I'm the Christ. I am who I said I was. And by the way, you can join my kingdom now. Because when Jesus died on the cross, the idea was not just I'm going to save them from their sins. It was I'm going to invite them to be a part of the kingdom where I reign with God. And, and, and Jesus wants us to be a part of that kingdom. And the problem is, is because Jesus is a king of justice and a kingdom of righteousness, we could not enter on our own. But Jesus, the king, knew he could let us in the kingdom if that sin was accounted for. And he said, I will pay that cost for each and every person who calls me Lord. And I marvel at this because he did not need to. God could have right from the beginning when, when the man blames God for the woman and the woman blames the serpent, God could have said, let's start over. 
Um, let's, uh, let's just, uh, let's, I, I've, I've got ideas on how I could change this. Instead, God said, someday I'm going to fix this. And when Jesus came, instead of fighting against the violence of the world, and instead of fighting it by being violent back, Remember, the Jews were waiting for exactly who Jesus was, but they wanted Jesus to be violent. The Jews wanted someone to overthrow the emperor, overthrow the Romans, and put the Jews back on top. And what's fascinating when you read it is in their attempt to get rid of the Messiah, who actually was the Messiah, they subject themselves to the Romans. They say, Romans, please, can we kill this guy? They, they like go like children asking their parents for permission to the people that they're like, we hate you, we don't want you. They, they say, hey, can we please do this? They subject themselves the same way the man and the woman subject themselves to the beast. And they don't take responsibility. And and because of that, the only human who has ever properly done from the start to the end, lived out the image of God in perfection, was fully God and fully man, from the line of David, from the line of God, from a descendant of Abraham to bless all nations, from the line of the woman. God did all of that. And that's who Christ is. And the beauty for us today is that if you call Jesus king, if he is your Lord, you are invited to be a part of that kingdom. Not just now, but for all eternity. We're invited to live in right relationship with God today, tomorrow, and forever. In our Revelation series, we talked about the complicated thing of already but not yet. Um, and we talked about being naked together in the first John theory series. Um, and, but but the, the whole idea there not being naked, really, but the idea, because we'll be clothed in heaven, but the idea being that we can go back to relationships without sin and shame because we've been given the Holy Spirit because of the death and resurrection of Jesus. And what we are now in Christ, someday we will perfectly be. And we can't really fathom it, but Jesus, and, and especially in the book of Revelation, he invites us again and again to experience that with him. He invites us to say, to, to overcome sin. We're no longer subject to sin. We're no longer slaves to sin. We're now subjects of Jesus, a perfect king. And, and I, I love this C.S. Lewis quote. I read this the other day, and it just hit me. From mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis said, the son, of man, or the son of God became man so that men could become the sons of God. And that could be men and women. But, um, but the, the, the point is, is just when Jesus came, when he became the Messiah, it was so that we could be a part of his kingdom. We could be the sons of God again. We could live out being the image of God, children of God, living the way we were intended to live, the way we were created to live, and living that way with each other and with God in right relationship now and for eternity. If you are out here today or online, I I just want to tell you that is afforded to you through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And the question is, is will you call him king? And if you call him king, there's a beautiful passage in Revelation 21. John, the author of this, says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. In a moment, we're going to take communion, and Bethany is going to come out and sing one last song. 
Um, and I want to tell you, as we take communion, we take communion to reflect on the death and resurrection of Jesus. We want to do communion if he just died and never rose again. But we do communion because of his death and his resurrection. And we do it also because we remember not just that he did that, but that he is with us. He was called Emmanuel, which means God with us, and he is with us always to the end of days. We do that to celebrate that where we are now, it's already we're a part of the kingdom of God if we are followers of Christ. Already we are, but someday we will experience it and the old things will pass away, and we will not pass away with them. We will be in God's presence fully the way that we were created from the beginning. And so in a moment, I'm going to invite you to come up during the song and take communion um, and just take your time to do it. But I'd encourage you before you get up to consider the king, to consider the one who shed his blood, because it wasn't just a man who said, I want to die for other people. It was a king who said, I want subjects who can be in my kingdom, who can dwell with me and dwell with my father forever. And that's a wonderful thing. And he doesn't just invite us as subjects and slaves. He invites us as his brothers and sisters, children of God, And he died on our behalf that we might live with him now and for eternity. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you sent your son. We thank you for the amazing gift that he is. Um, And we thank you that more than that, we thank you he is a king who rules with justice and, and righteousness. And we thank you that because of that, he rejects sin But we thank you that in his rejection of sin, he did not reject us. But instead, he died in our place that we could be a part of the kingdom where you dwell with your people for eternity. We thank you that almost 2,000 years ago, he sat with his closest followers and he broke bread with them. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And he said that knowing what was about to happen to him. And then he took the cup And he passed it and he said, this is my blood poured out for you for the forgiveness of sin. Do this in remembrance of me. And then he went to the garden after that and he prayed and he said, Father, not my will but yours. And then he went to Calvary and he died on the cross as a king enthroned that we might be a part of your kingdom. And he rose again to show us that he had defeated what the serpent brought in sin and death. And he blessed all nations and the Holy Spirit, not just being for one people, but for allowing all people to become your children. And he is a king from your line that will reign forever. We know he is in heaven with you even now. And we thank you for that. And we we pray that we would not take for granted you as king. We pray that we would live and follow after you, for you are a good king. And we thank you that we get to be a part of your kingdom. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Stars lingered over us, shepherds, we commoners, watching our flocks by night. Then in the sky above, glory of heaven shone, angels appeared in the light. And in four hundred years, not one word was spoken, and 
21 goes on, that last passage I read, it goes on to say, and he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. He also said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for the murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. There's a reminder at the end. There's one king, and he invites us to live as members of his kingdom. And it's such a good thing to remember. And through his death and his resurrection, we can overcome any and all sin through the Holy Spirit. And so as you go, I want to encourage you to make Christ the center of every day and go and worship him as king. sin and error pining till he appeared 
and the soul fell. 